Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. So uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we uh, destroyed a few microphones over the last couple of weeks. I don't know how we did it. So this is a brand new microphone, never been worn before. So you'll have to live with that, whatever happens. (laughs) So uh, I do want to give a shout out to all the folks that are joining us online. I have this unique experience on Sunday mornings now, so I go over to Pasadena early And uh, we do a 9 a.m. service there, and I get to be live with all those folks, which is so awesome. Because in the past, they were just getting a tape, and so I didn't get to see them face-to-face, didn't get to talk and interact. And then I get in the car, and about the time I get in the car, we're starting here, so I join the online congregation. So I said to them on the way over, hey, shout out to all of you. Thanks for worshiping this way. Uh, I hope you feel and sense that that matters. That it's not just those of us gathered in this room, it's those of us in the room, it's uh, you know, some folks over in Pasadena who just finished up a worship time and are still over there hanging out and fellowshipping a little bit, socially distanced, math. Uh, but also this online group, uh, people really across the country. So welcome, we want you all to be a part of this. If you wonder sometimes why we're talking about QR codes and you know, get your Connect card virtually, it's because of all of this. Because now, I don't know if you realize, but... Uh, A a little over a year ago at this time, we had multiple congregations, but they all met in this room, and then there was some people that joined us online. But after 14 months of everybody being online, that's a whole congregation now that needs care and help, and a whole lot of folks are saying, we're staying online. (laughs) So welcome. We're glad you're here. You're a part of us. So uh, I've been thinking about faith, and uh, I don't know how much you give thought to faith. You must have some because you're here. I mean, that takes some faith to get up on a Sunday morning and, you know, wander off to a church. Not that many people in our culture do it. I think the statistics now are fairly staggering. Like, it it might be less than 10% of the American population that actually attend church on a Sunday. I know that's the statistic locally. It's actually a little less than that. So, you know, sometimes when we think about, you know, the mission field, there's a very large mission field here for us. And so there's some element of faith. And so I think I have some. I think I've got a little faith. And then I read in the scripture, it says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Nothing, listen, will be impossible for you. And then I think, yeah, I must not have much faith. (laughs) That's not descriptive of the faith that I'm experiencing and living with. Is Is it descriptive of yours? That you have the kind of faith that makes the impossible possible. And what I realize when I get into that conversation is there's an awful lot about faith that I don't understand. There's an awful lot about faith that I don't get. And and I, I sort of grew up in an understanding of faith that it was like a currency. It was a quantity thing. If I had enough of it, I could get God to do things. Anybody else grow up like that? Think like that? Still find yourself thing. If I could get a little more faith, then God would do a little more stuff. But I'm not sure that's how faith works. So I think sometimes when God says, you know, have faith and God will give you the desires of your heart, I think 
the prerequisite of faith is that you're trusting God and surrendering to Him. So therefore, the desire of your heart is to do what God desires. You understand? So there's a lot to understand about this issue of faith. And when we start to think about it, here's the dilemma. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are called to have an identity. We're called to be something. We're called to live in something. We're called to be Christ-like people, to, to be on the way of becoming Christ-like. And we're told very explicitly, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're supposed to think differently, act differently. We're supposed to be growing up, maturing, getting more depth and understanding. We're supposed to be becoming better humans. Amen? Amen? <laughs> it's a very non <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. I got a little faith. I don't know if I have that much faith. And so we're, but then we're, so we, we're to have this identity. We're to be seeking purity. We're told, be holy as I am holy. We're to be seeking this. And that means there are certain things that we say no to. At the same time, we're supposed to throw our hearts and our arms wide open to anyone who is in need of mercy. And this is a hard way to live. This is very difficult. And the church has been going through this process for a long, long time. The world into which Jesus comes is so steeped in the structures of purity around Judaism. And he keeps throwing his arms and his heart wide open to people who are ceremonially, religiously unclean. It ultimately leads to his death. Ultimately, the structure and the purity circle cannot handle it. And the best option is that, and it's spoken by the Pharisees, that one man die. Better that one man die and the rest of the system be preserved than that that man live and the system be taken apart. And so it's hard to live like that. It's hard to know how because both things are true. We are to become more Christ-like. We are to say no to things. We are to move forward in our faith. And so a little bit of faith is supposed to... We're told in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for. And it's the assurance about, what, assurance about what we do not see. So the way I understand that is simply this, that, that I'm in a relationship with God, and He's made some promises to me. And so even when I can't see it, I trust it. Even when I can't figure out how it's going to work out, I trust in this relationship I have that God is working things out. I am sure of what I hope for and certain of what I do not see, not because the circumstances say so, but because the relationship says so. And so I think as we define faith, that's, that's what it's talking about, that I'm in this personal loving relationship, and because of that, I trust that God sees things I don't. He's working on things in ways I can't understand, that I'm simply walking in a way of trusting for what I can't see and what I can't prove. And then when I start to wrestle with this faith thing, then I stumble across the parables of Jesus. And those are troubling. And they're troubling because Jesus is telling stories to illustrate big truths. One of them that really causes me to struggle is that story about the Good Samaritan. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to really dive into that story. But, but here you have the people that you would expect to be the ambassadors of faith, the, the reservoir of faith. The priest comes by. Of all the people that you would think are, are, are highlighting what faith is all about, it would be the priest. But he walks by on the far side and he doesn't respond to the need. And then the Levite comes by and he also doesn't respond. And, and then 
the Samaritan comes by and he does respond. It's a troubling parable because what it says is the people that you would expect that you would think have figured out the faith thing and that they understand how to live in the purity space but also to live in the mercy space are not really doing that very well. And the people that you would never expect to respond in faithful ways, that have no real pedigree, no reason internally to be responding in this way, end up acting out in fairly faithful ways, faithful to the kingdom of God and faithful to the purposes of God. And what's so troubling about this story is Jesus tells it. He makes it up. It'd be a whole different thing if somebody else said it. But Jesus, in commentary and response to a legalist in the purity circle who is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. You'd think that the people that ought to be faithful were faithful. And you'd think that folks that don't seem like they got any reason to be faithful would not. But that's not always how it works. So it just testifies that we got a lot to learn about what it means to live out this faith we have been invited to share. One thing's for sure, when we talk about this topic, I don't know what happens in your brain, but I know this. Generally, if you want to have a discussion like this, you can do it really well in an academic setting. You know, because I don't know if you've read very much theology, but this is what people spend their time with. And they write on and on and on about these things and they get into this intellectual fine-tuning and we create actual languages and I don't know if you know this but German is the language of theology do you know why German is the language of theology because you can compound words it's the smoothest compounding language we have in existence. And so that means that theologians then are free to just gobble some words, you know, the longest words I know are German. And this is because some theologians said, you know what we need to talk about? Blah, 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 blah. Here's the word. And it's all sort of theoretical and academic until this one thing happens, till you and I face a hard time, till we go through trouble. So something happens in our life where we need faith to see us through, where we're trying to figure it out. Now it's not academic at all. Now it's not a philosophical discussion. Now we're not compounding words. Now we're saying, God, please help me. Help the people that I love. Help this situation. Heal the person that I love. Heal my body. And it's not theoretical anymore. Now faith becomes this thing that I need. And I want to understand and I want to embrace and I want to have it embrace me. And so when we begin to think about that, Soren Kierkegaard says these words, Trouble is the common denominator of living. It's the great equalizer. And isn't that true? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter the level of your education. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter what language you speak. None of that matters. Here's what matters. When trouble comes, we're all kind of in it together. And we struggle with the same fundamental questions about how faith works and how God's love works and how his intervention works. And if that's not enough, then Jesus has these things happen. And they're so weird and they're so odd and they're so layered up. And we sometimes read them so quickly that we miss the nuances. So I invite you to take a deep breath, whether you're online or you're sitting in the room, because I'm going to read this story to you. 
And I want you to really project yourself into the circumstance. You've heard it, but maybe you've never slowed down long enough to be in it. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked, when they all denied it. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. And she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. So there's a lot of layers going on here. Let's start with Jairus. So Jairus is the synagogue leader, and that tells us a few things about him right away. First of all, he's an insider. We know that as a synagogue leader, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a Levite. What he was was a local person who had risen to leadership inside the synagogue. It was his responsibility to make sure everything was set up properly. It was his responsibility to create order. It was his responsibility. You know, any good church has those folks. You know that? Uh, some people get here early on Sunday morning, and they're busy, busy. They're setting up. They're helping children get ready. They're da 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 And we couldn't function without them. I mean, you couldn't function. And Jairus is one of these people. He's the leader of the synagogue. He has taken on that role. And, and part of his role is to make sure the protocol of the temple is followed so that when the Levites and the priests arrive, everything is in order for them. So that means everybody has to be in the right place at the right time. Now, we know this from Judaism. There's a great hierarchy. And so who's at the top of the hierarchy in ancient Judaism? Men. Wow. And no jeering, no cheering, just nothing. We are so politically correct. Everybody's like, I ain't touching that. I ain't saying a word. I'm not even going to blink my eyes right now. Somebody be canceling me out next thing I know. Just talking about history, not making a statement. Top of the chain, top of the food chain in uh, ancient Judaism, men. Men had the prominent place in the synagogue. They had the places of influence. They're the ones who talked. They're the ones who interacted. And Jairus is in charge of making sure that the men are where they're supposed to be. More importantly, they're making sure that the women are not where they're not supposed to be because there's also a place for the women. Now, that would be just the Jewish folks. In a smaller synagogue, there really wouldn't be any space for Gentiles. There'd be no space for outsiders. If you're at one of the bigger temples or synagogues, then there is an outer court for the Gentiles. The only Gentiles that could actually be in the synagogue were those who had converted and become completely committed to Judaism. They'd gone through an entire process by which they were now considered Jewish by conversion instead of Jewish by birth. And so you have this hierarchy. But that's just a piece of what's going on in the protocol. There's also the reality of who's clean and who's unclean because people who are unclean can't get into the temple. 
And so of all the things, one of Jairus' jobs would have been to make sure everyone is following the rules. And so, interestingly, for Jairus, who's a part of the old synagogue structure, who's a part of uh, the hierarchy of Judaism, he would be aware of the fact that Jesus has been a person that the hierarchy has said, be careful of this one. In fact, don't associate with this one. It wasn't unusual in the first century and the centuries leading up to it to have messianic figures show up on the scene. In fact, they were showing up all the time. In fact, if you look at the Roman record, Rome was executing them frequently because usually they were leading rebellions. And so when they came and there were armed insurrections, you always had sort of the leader figure in the middle of it. And the truth is, the, Judy, the Jews didn't really get all that involved with it, but Jesus was different. Because of the leading of John the Baptist and the, and the structure in which the Jews really saw the leading of Elijah and now the messianic implications of who Jesus, there were a lot of folks starting to go, this might really be the Messiah. And he was gathering a following. Unlike so many other leaders, he had legs. I mean, the fact was, his leadership was getting stronger, not weaker. And it was threatening. And so the official line was, stay away from him. Do nothing to give him credibility or space. If you're going to talk to him, ridicule him or try to make him stumble. So the interactions that you see with the Pharisees, and you read this, the Pharisees came down from Jerusalem to question Jesus. They come down to to stand in the crowd and throw out questions that are intended to embarrass him and, and destroy his credibility. So now, that's Jarius. And what is the language Luke, Luke uses? Remember the setting. They knew he was coming. There was a crowd. He came back to town. It was jam-packed. Jarius fell at his feet and pleaded with Jesus. It turns out that moments of troubled desperation cause us to reach in ways we would have never reached before. Let's think for a minute about the woman. What we know about her is very little. We know that she's been sick for a while. I love this little caveat. Matthew and Mark also record the story for us. And in Matthew and Mark, it's very distinct language. It says that she had had this issue for 12 years, and she had been to doctors everywhere, and she had spent her entire life savings on trying to find a cure, but she hadn't been helped. In fact, she was worse off than she was before she started. Dr. Luke chooses not to include this little piece of information. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I love that. I just love the fact that you see Luke's personality in the writing. He's very much present. Well, I ain't saying that. I'm not putting that little thing in there. I'm going to clean that up. Here's what I'm going to say. And she had not been helped. That's all he says. Twelve years she's been seeking some answer to the problem. That would mean that for 12 years, she has been ceremonially unclean. She has been unable to participate in the protocol of the temple, which meant what is a physical problem had now become a spiritual problem. Because she wasn't just unclean physically, she was now unclean spiritually. And I don't know that it's true, but given the scene and the proximity and the role that Jarius plays... It's very possible that Jarius was the very person who was keeping her from participating. That it was actually Jarius's job to keep her out for 12 years. I mean, 
Wouldn't that be ironic in the story? And now the story begins to unfold. Jairus comes and falls at the feet of Jesus and he pleads with him to come and help him because his daughter is in danger of dying. And Jesus responds. And he begins to make his way to Jairus' home to help. And he stops and he says, who touched me? This interruption must have been unbearable for Jairus. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. No, I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman who has been very content to sneak through the crowd and just touch the hem of the garment, and we're told, who in that moment has been healed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jairus, I've got issues. I've got so many issues right now. And so everything stops in this moment. Jesus says, and, and she now knowing that she cannot go unnoticed. Her plan was to sneak in. She wasn't making a commitment to Jesus. She wasn't going all in. She didn't stand up in front of anybody. She snuck through the crowd, touched the little part of his garment. She intended to get in, touch his garment, get out. That was the plan. Even after she touched the garment and she realized she was instantly healed, she snuck back through the crowd. She was on her way home. She's out of there. And Jesus stops. When she realizes she can not go unnoticed, she comes forward. And they have a conversation. Jarius must be going out of his mind at this point. I mean, he must just be bouncing off the walls. At some point, the emotional content of what's going on in him must look like this. What are, what are you thinking? I show up every single Sabbath. I serve and I serve and I serve and I serve. I uphold the law. I uphold the rules. I do everything right. She hadn't been to church in 12 years She's unclean in every possible way. She's an outsider and I am an insider. Not to mention, her problem's chronic. Mine's acute. She's had it going on for 12 years. Let's do this Thursday. No reason it has to happen right now. No reason. I have the better faith. I have the cleaner faith. I have the purer faith. And while Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says to her. To this desperate woman who snuck through the crowd, who touched the hem of his garment, go in peace. Your faith has made you whole. Well, I don't know where you come from, but to where I come from, that's not the kind of faith that makes you whole. I mean, the kind of faith that makes you whole is this resolute belief without any doubt. This resolute, settled sense in which I, I just trust God and nothing else. I, I don't see that faith of a desperate person unwilling to stand up publicly and say, Jesus, my faith's in you. Instead, content to sneak through the crowd. Just get a little touch and sneak back out. At that moment, a person arrives. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your child is dead. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't worry, just believe. Must fit nicely in with how Jairus is thinking at the moment. Which is, I don't want to quit. I don't want to give up. I don't want it to be over. I don't want to lose. And now Jesus goes with Jairus to the house. 
And when they arrive at the house, some things begin to unfold. Listen to how it is now in the conclusion of the story told to us, Luke 8. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning. Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, and he said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. And then this makes no sense. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. I think there's a whole crowd outside wailing. I, I think she'll, they'll know something's up when she comes out. <laughs> and I don't know what laughing and ridicule and mockery have to do with faith. I don't know how they all get jammed into this story and how they all fit in together. But I do believe there are a couple of things that you and I ought to think about this morning. Number one, it turns out you don't need much faith for Jesus to stop and give you his attention. You don't need much faith for Jesus to stop and give you his attention. So Jairus, who two weeks ago wouldn't have had anything to do with Jesus who two weeks ago would have been a part of the mockery and the ridicule, who two weeks ago would have shunned Jesus, would have closed him out, would have called the Pharisees from Jerusalem to come to support some way of discrediting Jesus. Today falls at his feet in the middle of a crowd. And I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, that's not great faith. That's desperation. That doesn't matter if you're the religious insider. It doesn't matter what. To get into a moment where the trouble is so acute that we fall at the feet of Jesus and we cry out and we plead with him doesn't seem to me to be a testimony of great faith. But it turns out that it doesn't take some kind of mysterious great faith to have Jesus turn and give you his attention and give you his support. It's a testimony to the grace of God. In the second place, it would seem to me that the woman who snuck through the crowd to touch the edge of his robe isn't demonstrating much great faith either. She's not making much commitment here, is she? There's no declaration. We don't know what's in her heart. Here's what it seems to me. It's been 12 years. I've tried everything. I'm out of money. I'm desperate. I'm going to just see if this works. What do I got to lose? I got nothing to lose. It's a last-ditch effort. I'm not only into the Jesus thing. I'm not a Jesus freak. I'm not signing up had all I want a religion I'm just going to shoot off a little Jesus flare and see if anything happens and every one of us has been both of these people at one time or another the folks who believe that somehow God should honor the fact that we've gone to church and we've been a part of the purity circle and we've done our best and we've tried and though we may not be dependent right now something's going on in our life and we are And we don't really care what anybody thinks. We fall at the feet of Jesus and we plead and we plead and we plead. And God in his grace looks at us and goes, I got you. I know all that complicated politics you play. I get it. But right now, here's what matters. I see you. And I'm reaching to you. And for the woman who has snuck through the crowd, one last desperate attempt at something, just trying everything, 
Tried this, tried that, went there, ate that, took that. Just in this moment, I'm just going to try one more thing. Don't know who she thought Jesus was. But Jesus stops and responds to her. And she's healed and she's transformed. And then he looks at her and he says these crazy words. Your faith has made you whole. Jarius, don't worry, just believe. And your daughter's going to be okay. So, it turns out you don't need much faith for Jesus to stop and give you attention. Number two, faith reaches down, but it also reaches up. The woman would be very sympathetic in our story and culture today, wouldn't she? I mean, let's, let's put her in light of our culture. Everybody still with me, by the way? Yes. Hopefully online. Yes, yes. Again, I said this a few weeks ago, but you guys... Uh, you know, you've been online for a while and you know this is the moment. This is about right. You've been droning on for a little while. You know, is that guy still talking on the TV? <laughs> you're shopping your phone. You're looking at stuff. I'm going to get another donut and cup of coffee, you know. Just turn it up a little. I'll listen from the kitchen. Uh, now you're trapped in the room and you're thinking, those people online, they got it going on. So this woman, if you put her into our culture today, she would be incredibly sympathetic. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's been ill for a long time. Number three, she's been disenfranchised and mistreated by the hierarchy of power. Number four, the medical community has failed her. I mean, she hits a lot of buttons that would create in us a great sympathy for someone who has been mistreated in our culture and is the underdog. And here's what's so weird about the story. Jarius has almost no sympathetic characteristics. If you put Jarius into our culture today, he's a part of the power structure. He's a part of the religious right that is oppressing other people. He's a part of the folks that's creating these hierarchies. He's a part of the folks that's enforcing these hierarchies. He's a part of the folks that is creating this sort of separation. And I just make this observation. It turns out it doesn't take much faith for God to stop and listen and lend his help and support. But he not only reaches down, he reaches up. It seems like in our cancel culture, what we've decided is that people who are disenfranchised and broken deserve redemption, but people who are up and broken don't deserve redemption. And we have a tendency to leave one and embrace the other. Jesus never did it. He never did it. He resisted it. He spent a moment, and, and I don't know, if you're God, you could do this. I mean, if you're God, you could be in that moment and go, Jarius, I'm going to teach you a little lesson for you and all your buddies. <laughs> Who touched me? I'll get back to you. But do you ever wonder if maybe this moment is just a sociological moment in which Jesus is culturally creating a revolution in which he's saying, I know how you work. And I know how things work over at the synagogue. But let me tell you how the kingdom of God works. Who touched me? Oh, you think this is the least? Let me tell you. This is a story of redemption. This is a miracle. This is as valid of a moment in the story of the kingdom of God as anything that ever happened over at the synagogue. And when all that's done, though it was chronic and not acute, though it could have been done Thursday... He turns his attention back and he says, now, 
now. Hopefully, that taught you a little something. Now let's take care of you. And let's take care of where you are. You think Jarius was the same human being after this moment? You think he ever saw the world the same way? You think the folks that showed up at the temple to see if they were ceremonial clean enough to come and participate in the protocol of the church ever got the same attitude again? I bet not. I bet not. Two things that I think matter to you. Number one, it doesn't matter if you're coming to Jesus in a moment of great desperation. It doesn't matter if mixed up in that or attitudes that say, well, I've been doing everything right. Why didn't Jesus help me? It doesn't matter if you come in with some kind of pristine philosophy. It doesn't matter if your theology is all good. It doesn't matter if your attitude is all good. It turns out that a moment of desperation causes a response from God. In fact, what it seems like is no matter how you reach, God reaches back. It brings all new light to that little parable that says, if he had a, if, here's what your father in heaven is like. It's like a shepherd that has 100 sheep, 99 are safe, and one is lost. Will he not go in search of the one lost sheep? I don't know about you, but to me, that story always meant something about other people. Not that I was never the lost sheep. It's just I never imagined God would come looking for me. I mean, I knew he'd look for somebody, but not me. I knew better. I needed a, a better attitude. I needed a better... I shouldn't have failed that way. I shouldn't have acted like that. Why would he come looking for me? I, I always imagined that if I was the lost sheep, I'd have to be figuring out how to find my way back to the shepherd. Anybody else? Even though he said explicitly. <laughs> so wherever you might find yourself in a moment of desperation where maybe your politics and your attitude and all that other stuff that's supposed to underlie it and your spirit about the church and your spirit about lost people... Maybe it's gotten all jacked up. It turns out that a desperate plea is enough to cause the compassion of God to move in your direction. Doesn't matter if you are saying, I don't know, I've tried everything. And we do, don't we? We do. I've got this thing going on, I've got that thing going on, I've read this book, I've gone to that thing, I've taken that supplement, I'm doing this diet, I'm working on this thing, I'm doing that, I got this, I got that, I'm going to check my horoscope, I'm doing it, you know, you know, and I'm going to shoot off a Jesus flare just to see if maybe, I mean, what I got to lose. <laughs> These are unclean kinds of faith. And yet Jesus responds. That a Jesus flare causes a compassionate response from a loving God, even when we don't deserve grace. Isn't that a terrible sentence? I mean, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Even when we don't deserve grace. You can't deserve grace. It's unmerited favor, by definition. But we think it. Well, I'm probably deserve a little more than some other people. That's the first thing. Wherever you are in your journey, whatever it is, God sees you and He hears you. And the smallest effort at reaching, He responds to. Whatever you're going through, whatever's going on, whatever stories you tell yourself in your head about how much faith you've got to have and how it's got to all work, listen, the smallest effort to reach, He responds to. Number two. That attitude ought to go out of us as we encounter the people in our world. 
It ought to go out to us. We, we ought to understand it and see it and, and, and just embrace the reality that while we are called to be growing in Christ and creating an identity that is Christ-like and the pursuit that we have is to ask God to help us to become more and more like Him, we open our heart and our arms to a world that is in desperate need of the grace of a loving God. Because we look at the story and we go, you know what? This God reaches down to people and up to people. And He's in the business of redeeming. And it doesn't matter if somebody well-placed in the hierarchy who's creating the systems of injustice, He's going to work to redeem that because we need those systems to go away. Or if it's somebody that's broken and on the outskirts because of the systems, He's going to love them and He's going to love them. And we're supposed to do that too. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible. God, would you help us as we practice our unclean faith? It's not perfect. It's not pristine. It's not everything you've invited us to do or be or believe, and yet you respond to us. And maybe that's what you meant when it just takes faith as a grain of mustard seed. That it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take us figuring it all out or practicing it perfectly. It takes us reaching. Maybe out of desperation. Maybe because we've tried everything else and we're just running out of options. But somehow you still meet us in that space. Don't let us live there. Pull us into relationship, pull us into a place of trust and love, a place in which we listen for your voice and we follow it, a place where we're not on the outside looking in, where we don't believe the practice of our faith is what saves us, but your grace is what saves us. Would you lead us? Would you remind us that we are the people who in this moment maybe need a divine touch. I pray for those homes and families. I pray for healing. I pray that you would intercede. I pray for relationships to heal. I, I, I pray for financial issues to be resolved. I, I pray that you would be present as we figure out what this world is going to look like in the next few weeks and months. I pray that you would allow us to let go of our fear, that you would allow us to let go of the conspiracy theories and remind ourselves that this is my Father's world and you are active in it. And you're going to lead and you're going to speak. And then allow us to go from this place and not only receive that kind of love and care, but to extend that kind of grace to every person we need. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.